Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Myers Detox podcast. And you can find all the information about, you know, how to detox your body on MyersDetox.com, my website. And you can sign up to get a lot, all kinds of free e-guides. And you can take my heavy metals quiz at heavymetalsquiz.com to sign up for my newsletter. So highly recommend that to get the latest updates on health and how to detox your body. And that's what we talk about on the show. We talk about uh, today, we're talking with my friend Ari Witten about how to eat for energy. Really interesting show today. We talk about how to optimize your mitochondria. We talk about how people lose on average 10% of their mitochondria per year. We talk about uh, some of the superfoods and foods that you need to feed your mitochondria. Uh, we talk about uh, all kinds of ways to optimize your circadian rhythms, these cues that your body takes from the environment to regulate sleep and energy production. Uh, we talk about um, just so many interesting things. Ari's always such a wealth of information on how the body works. Uh, he's the author of several books, I think eight books by now, and his newest book, Eat for Energy is on it reached 68 in all the books of Amazon. We're going to go into detail about what that book covers as well. Um, so check out the show. It's really, really good. And I know you guys listening to this show are concerned about your body burden of heavy metals and toxins and how to detox them. So I created a quiz called heavymetalsquiz.com. You can go there and take the free quiz get your results, kind of what your body burden is, uh, your level is a body burden relatively. And then you get a free, uh, a free email series that includes lots of free videos that answer all of your frequently asked questions about detoxification, how to detox your body, how long does it take, what are some of the optimal supplements to detox your body, heavy metals testing, and so many different things. It's really, really educational. So go check that out at heavymetalsquiz.com. So on the show today, Ari Witten is the founder of the Energy Blueprint System, which is a comprehensive lifestyle and supplement program, which has helped more than 2 million people and counting experience optimal health, better performance, and more energy look everybody wants. And so he's also the best-selling author of The Ultimate Guide to Red Light Therapy. And he's also the host of the popular The Energy Blueprint Podcast, which features the world's leading natural health expert, And I've been on that show as well. And so in 2020, Ari was voted the number one health influencer by Mindshare, which is the largest natural and functional medicine community. And for more than 25 years, Ari has been dedicated to the study of human health science. He holds a master's in human nutrition and functional medicine, a BS in kinesiology and certifications as a corrective exercise specialist and performance enhancement specialist from the National Academy of Sports Medicine. And he has completed all of the coursework for a clinical psychology PhD. You can find his podcast programs and supplement formulas at theenergyblueprint.com. Ari, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Wendy. Always a pleasure to connect with you. Yes. Yeah, so you're, you're talking a lot more these days about something I've you know, spoken quite a bit, a bit about, which is fatigue. And it's you know the number one complaint that most people have when they're addressing their health issues. Everybody wants more energy. So why don't you talk to us about some of the, the top causes of fatigue? Okay. So I, uh, I think this is a, such a big picture question that sometimes it's hard for me to know where, where to begin because it's a 
could be a 10 hour answer, right? So the, the, the high level sort of 30,000 foot view is I like to think of fatigue as having two fundamental causes. One cause is what's going on at the lifestyle and environmental level. So what environmental toxicants are you being exposed to, which is your area of focus, which is a huge factor for many people. Um, psychological stress. What about uh, your nutrition? What about your circadian rhythm and sleep? What about your, uh, your, your light deficiencies, light toxicities, right? Um, there's so many different aspects of what's going on at the environment and lifestyle level. And that total body stress load that you're under is a huge factor in controlling your energy levels. And we'll talk about wh what mechanisms are actually mediating that. Um, and then the other big factor is you, it, meaning what is going on in your body at the cellular level in not just in the sense of your lifestyle and environment, that's, we'll treat that as a separate issue I just mentioned, but um, in the sense of are your cells filled with big, strong mitochondria and lots of them, or are they filled with weak, fragile, atrophied mitochondria and very few of them? And to give you some specific data on what I mean by that, um, it's been shown in, in several studies where they take muscle biopsies uh, they take a big hollow needle, they jab it into people's thighs and they pull out a chunk of muscle tissue and they literally put it under a microscope and count the number of mitochondria in the cells. And it's been shown that on average people's uh, mitochondrial capacity, basically the number of mitochondria per cell declines by about 10% with each decade of life on average. So a typical 70 year old has about 25 to 35% of the mitochondrial capacity of a young adult. They've lost 70 plus percent of their mitochondria, in other words. Now, if you're losing 70 plus percent of your cellular energy generators, that is a huge problem. You're losing 70% of your capacity to generate energy. Okay, so the con and, and these two things interface. Factor number one that I mentioned, what's going on at the environment and lifestyle level, and factor number two, which is your cells and how many mitochondria do you have. Those two things interface with one another. Mitochondria are actually tasked with responding to the stress that the body is under. And it is, they are essentially the most upstream thing. Now, um, the way that mitochondria used to be taught about taught in like high school and actually are still taught in high school and college biology courses is as these sort of mindless energy generators that just take in carbs and fats and pump out energy in the form of atp it turns out in the last decade we've discovered that mitochondria actually have a second role and that is a role as environmental sensors and they, they are essentially the canaries in the coal mine of your body. And their job is to sense when the body is under threat. So they're constantly taking samples of the environment, basically asking the question, are we under attack? Are we under attack? Is there a threat present? And here's the key thing, their role in orchestrating a defense response to that stressor, to that threat, to the degree that they are doing that, they are turning down energy production. So in other words, energy and cell defense 
are two sides of the same coin and they are mutually exclusive functions. So to the degree that the mitochondria are picking up on a threat, whether that threat is heavy metals, like you talk a lot about, or other environmental toxicants or psychological stress or poor nutrition or sleep deprivation or any number of other stressors, a pathogen, lots of other things, they are turning down the dial on energy production. And that is fundamentally what controls and regulates human energy levels. And the last thing I'll say on that is to the degree that you have big, strong mitochondria and lots of them in your cells, your mitochondria have a higher resilience threshold, meaning they have a higher capacity to handle the stress load that the body is under and maintain health and homeostasis and high energy levels. And to the degree that you've lost mitochondria and you have weak, fragile, atrophied mitochondria and few of them in your cells, you lower your resilience threshold and then the mitochondria become much more easily overwhelmed and they are triggered into defense mode where they turn down the dial on energy production much more easily. So that's kind of the big picture overview of what's regulating, what's actually controlling human energy levels. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And, you know, you talk about the cell danger response where they're, you know, shutting down energy so they're not feeding a pathogen or giving them energy, uh, fueling energy for them to to survive and thrive. Um, and there, there's so many factors that affect uh, affect our energy levels. So what about nutrition? Uh, so the mitochondria require specific types of nutrition. So uh, how does your nutrition make or break your energy levels? Yeah. Well, so that's the topic of my new book, eat, eat your eat for energy and it's how to beat fatigue and supercharge your mitochondria and unlock all day energy. So and the whole book you, is, where are you on the Amazon? I, I saw you were like at number 58 and all the books of Amazon. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. I think that's as high as I got up to was 58. Yeah. Um, and there's a demand, there's a huge demand for this book. It's very popular. You know, you guys need to go out and check it out. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, so yeah, I think it's hovering it last I checked, it was hovering around number 100 and in all books on Amazon, it's been there for a couple of weeks now. So that's great. Um, so the, the whole, I, I guess the best way of doing it is I can give kind of an outline of what the, what the book entails, because the whole book is about the relationship of nutrition and energy and mitochondria. So, um, the first chapter of the book is basically what I just explained very succinctly, the, the, the how mitochondria work to regulate human energy levels. And then the, the, the first sort of main or the second chapter, I guess I should say is how nutrition interfaces with the circadian rhythms of our body, which regulate energy levels or impact on energy levels through multiple different mechanisms, neurotransmitters, hormones, mitochondria. There's a few different things we could talk about there. Uh, and then the next one is, uh, how nutrition relates to body composition, how much fat and how much muscle you have on your body, which relates to energy levels and mitochondrial function. And the next chapter is all about blood sugar regulation. And this is, this is a huge thing for most people in the modern world. Um, just to give you one data point over 80% of the population, uh, experiences spikes into the pre-diabetic or diabetic ranges of blood sugar levels every single day. And one third of adults also experience hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, uh, on, on a daily basis where blood sugar dips two to five hours after eating. Uh, and that's another major cause of low energy levels. There's another segment of people that experiences what's called, um, 
idiopathic postprandial syndrome. Idiopathic means we don't know what's causing it. Postprandial is post meal after eating syndrome. So it's symptoms that happen after eating for unknown causes. Um, but they give it a name and it sounds like they know what they're talking about. So uh, basically this is symptoms of low blood sugar, but technically the body doesn't dip into low blood sugar levels. It's still a, a problem with blood sugar regulation. All of these things are major causes and contributors of energy problems, and they're mainly nutritional in nature. Um, the next chapter is all about gut health. And of course, there's a gut brain axis. There's a gut mitochondria axis. What's going on in the gut has a profound impact on your energy. And, uh, and the next chapter is on brain health. And then part two of the book has a section on energy, superfoods, and supplements. So mitochondrial enhancing supplements, energy enhancing supplements. Um, and that's, that's kind of like a little encyclopedia unto itself. It's almost a book in and of itself, just that, that chapter. Yeah. And what, what's the issue with caffeine and stimulants? Um, because, you know, mm -hmm. we talk about superfoods and nutrition that we need for mitochondria. We'll get into that uh, in a minute. So most people, they want energy, they reach for caffeine and stimulants. What, what's the problem with that? And what can people do instead? Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if that was the solution to our energy problems, to our fatigue epidemic? If, if all we had to do was just, um, take some caffeine and stimulants, drink some more coffee and, and we're good to go. Um, but of course it's not, uh, and everybody who drinks lots of coffee or takes stimulants knows that that's not a good solution, but there is, uh, an insidious aspect to that because taking those, those compounds, using caffeine, drinking coffee, taking stimulants has, it gives you the subjective sense that they are energizing you. But in fact, they're not, they're actually wrecking your energy levels over time. So to let me take you kind of into the mechanisms of how this works. And then we can talk about some of the research that's tested this. So first of all, how does caffeine work? Um, to understand how caffeine works, you have to understand just a bit about the neurotransmitter systems of the brain. So the brain is always trying to regulate an appropriate neurotransmitter balance. And we have stimulatory neurotransmitters and we have inhibitory neurotransmitters, stimulating, energizing neurotransmitters and relaxing, you know, sleepy time neurotransmitters. And there's always a, a balance that the brain's trying to regulate. And that differs depending on the time of day. Is it daytime or is it nighttime, right? Balance shifts. So, but it likes the proper balance and it is trying to regulate that balance. Okay. So one of those neurotransmitters, that's an inhibitory neurotransmitter that makes you lower energy, sleepy, tired is called adenosine. So when this adenosine neurotransmitter hits those adenosine receptors in the brain, this triggers a cascade that lowers your energy levels and makes you tired. The way that caffeine works is by fitting into those adenosine receptors. So the caffeine molecule literally goes into those exact adenosine receptors, but instead of triggering the cascade that adenosine triggers, it just blocks adenosine from getting into those receptors. It plugs them up. So the adenosine is just floating around, but can't meet its receptor. So by plugging up the adenosine receptors, you're preventing this inhibitory neurotransmitter from creating a lower energy effect. And, and by doing that, by blocking this low energy neurotransmitter, you create a stimulating energizing effect. So that's fundamentally how caffeine works. And all of that sounds wonderful. Um, and in fact, it is wonderful. 
if in the short term, if you take people who are caffeine naive, meaning they don't normally consume caffeine and you give them caffeine, you can measure and many studies have measured significant measurable improvements in mood, in energy levels, in cognitive performance, in reaction time, in physical performance, in stamina and endurance and time to exhaustion. All these measures of, of mental and physical performance and energy are improved by giving caffeine. The problem is, as I said before, the brain likes balance. It likes to be in a certain balance of these stimulatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters. So as soon as you start to add that caffeine on a regular basis, on a daily basis, particularly if you're doing it multiple times per day, the brain starts to go, I'm being overstimulated. I need to remedy this situation. And it adapts. It adapts to that excessive stimulation by bringing things back into balance. And the way that it does that is by creating more adenosine and more adenosine receptors in the brain. That does a couple things. One, it increases your tolerance to caffeine. You now need more caffeine to have the same energizing effect that you used to get with a smaller amount. This is why people end up over time consuming more cups of, of coffee than they did originally. And the second more important aspect of that is you now have more adenosine and more adenosine receptors in your brain all the time, which means as soon as that caffeine leaves your system, you have increased the, the amount of adenosine signaling, the amount of that reaction that adenosine is creating that is lowering your energy levels. So this is called withdrawal. And we talk about this, we use this word withdrawal in the context of drug addiction in the context of like somebody is a, an alcoholic or a cocaine addict or something like that. And then they may have been on it for months or years. And then when they get off of it, they have withdrawal symptoms. They feel awful. Okay. Believe it or not, withdrawal symptoms with caffeine happen every single day. So it happens within a 24 hour period. So what I mean by that is if you look at somebody who consumes caffeine on a daily basis, and uh, particularly if they consume multiple cups a day, if you've ever seen somebody like that wake up in the morning, typically they, they're groggy, they have a hard time getting up, they have brain fog, they can't think clearly, they're kind of in this half sleep state, zombie-like state, um, they, they don't have energy, they don't have good brain function, and then the first thing they do is they, they go to their coffee, and then only after you know 15 minutes or so after they start drinking their coffee, then the systems of their body, their brain, their, their energy levels start to turn on. Now, here's the insidious part that, that most people don't know. The, most people think when they take the, their caffeine that they're getting a boost. And so they go, well, I'm in this state and then I take my caffeine and then I feel more energy and better brain function and all this thing. So I, I feel like I'm getting a boost. There is a subjective boost that you feel. However, it turns out that if you compare, and, and research has done this, if you compare people who are chronic caffeine consumers to um, people who don't consume caffeine at all, there is no boost. There is no increased level of energy. There is no increased level of cognitive performance or physical performance that you saw in the caffeine naive people who take caffeine. You're just getting right? back to normal. Exactly. Getting back to so, like baseline. Exactly. So that's exactly what's happening. So um, basically the caffeine is 
because it creates those negative neurotransmitters uh, adaptations in the brain, you lower your baseline levels of energy and mood and cognitive and physical performance. And now the boost that you feel is actually just a boost back up to what used to be your normal level of function. It is what's called in the literature withdrawal reversal. All you're doing is you're creating these negative effects that lower your energy so that you're groggy and you have brain fog and you're low energy. And then you need that substance now to get you a boost back up to what used to be your normal to reverse the withdrawal effects that you got from introducing that drug too frequently. Yeah. So this is, this is the insidious part of caffeine and, um, and stimulants more broadly. I'll do that. The same sort of basic principles apply. Uh, and, um, Basically, it's counterproductive to use caffeine and stimulants on a regular basis. It is absolutely not a solution to your energy problems. It will only make you worse to use them in, in significant amounts or high frequency. Yeah, I love how you're explaining this as I'm drinking green tea. So let's talk about some of the, the mechanisms of sleep. So, you know, sleep obviously is needed to have energy when people are tired, they feel like they need to sleep to regenerate, but sleep is actually a very energy intensive process. Uh, I think people don't, don't really realize that. So what are the mechanisms by which sleep and circadian rhythm relate to, to our energy levels? Okay. So there's a lot here. So first of all, we have a circadian clock in our brain. This is the central clock. The central clock regulates many, many different aspects of, um, our physiology through multiple mechanisms, through neurotransmitters. It has an impact on dopamine, on serotonin, on GABA, on orexin, these neurotransmitters that are involved in mood and energy and motivation and joy and, um, and drive and relaxation. So having a dysfunctional circadian rhythm or non-optimal sleep is going to negatively affect all of those things to some degree. It also impacts on many different hormones. So we have hormones like growth hormone, for example, that in people with chronic fatigue syndrome and poor sleep have massively lower amounts of growth hormone at night when we should be having a spike in growth hormone. And this is a hormone that's involved in cellular healing and regeneration. Um, we have testosterone, we have thyroid hormone, we have cortisol, and we have melatonin, all of which are hormones that have many different important physiological roles uh, that are heavily impacted by the circadian rhythm. They're circadian regulated hormones. So if circadian rhythm is not optimal, the, the, the levels of those hormones will not be optimal. And the timing of them, the rhythms will not be optimal. Now, just by itself, that already is a huge factor, but there's still more mechanisms. So your energy and your sleep are two sides of the same coin and they're connected by the circadian rhythm. So the quality of your sleep at night and the quality of your energy levels and your wakefulness during the day are dependent on an, on a, a, a functional, healthy circadian rhythm. So the central clock in the brain that I just mentioned, and we also have peripheral clocks as a more recent scientific discovery, we have peripheral clocks in basically all the tissues and organs of our body from our skin to our muscles, to our bones, to our intestines, to our liver, to our heart, to our hormone producing glands. They all have their own circadian rhythms. Now, while the central clock in the brain is primarily responsive to light inputs, 
all these peripheral clocks throughout the other tissues of our body are primarily responsive to food inputs. Now, the goal, if we want to optimize the whole system to optimize all aspects of our circadian rhythm, which impact on all these different mechanisms I talked about and more, um, the, the goal is to synchronize the central clock and the peripheral clocks to have them both functioning strongly and for them to be synchronized together. So the central clock, we do that by modifying light inputs, getting bright light first thing in the morning within half an hour, um, getting ample bright light, ideally outdoor sunlight throughout the day, uh, and minimizing artificial light at night in a couple hours before bed. Um, all of that, there's lots of details there, I'm sure, but it's pretty easy to access a lot of that information nowadays. Um, the peripheral clocks that are primarily responsive to food inputs require other strategies, the most important of which is your feeding and fasting windows. We need an adequate fasting window every night for our circadian rhythms to function optimally for all of those different neurotransmitters and hormones I just mentioned, and also for another couple important mechanisms. One is for glymphatic drainage in the brain, which is like the brain cleansing itself of toxins every night while we sleep. Uh, we need to be in a fasted state for that to happen well, and for autophagy and mitophagy for the basically for our cells to identify and chemically digest the dysfunctional and worn out parts and rebuild new healthy parts and that same concept that same process uh happens at the mitochondrial level as well and it's called mitophagy extremely important for maintaining uh, a pool of healthy um, functional non-dysfunctional mitochondria um, important not only for energy, but also for preventing cancer. If mitophagy and autophagy are impaired due to, due to an unhealthy circadian rhythm and sleep, um, that is going to increase the risk of cancer and many other diseases massively. So all of that depends upon an adequate um, feeding and fasting window each day. Research by Sachin Panda has shown that most Americans, over 85% of Americans, consume a, a feeding window from their first bite of food to their last bite of food of between 13 to 16 hours each day. What's optimal is between 6 to 10 hours each day. So most people are just consuming food way too long during the day, which is the equivalent in terms of the, the central clock. It's the equivalent of having way too much artificial light blaring into your eyes way too long during each day. And this has profound metabolic and hormonal and mitochondrial consequences. So a couple other things I'll mention um, as far as mechanisms is um, we know that disrupted circadian rhythm and sleep also impairs insulin sensitivity dramatically. So it leads to another major, major cause of low energy levels and mitochondrial dysfunction, which is high blood sugar levels. So in, insulin resistance is very, very bad for metabolic health. And one other aspect I wanna focus on here is melatonin. Uh, melatonin is often thought by many people as like, oh yeah, melatonin, that's a, a supplement that I use for sleep. Well, melatonin is a hormone produced by your body. And, um, and many people still, they know it's a, maybe they know it's a hormone and they know it's involved in sleep, but here's what most people don't know. Melatonin is the most important mitochondrial antioxidant there is. 
and it needs your, your mitochondria need to be bathed in melatonin each night before bed and during sleep in order to be protected and to recharge. And basically that melatonin not only acts as a direct antioxidant, but it also interacts with the internal antioxidant defense system inside of our cells and our mitochondria, something called the ARE, antioxidant response element, which basically contains very powerful and important internal antioxidants like glutathione, catalase, and superoxide dismutase. So by being bathed in melatonin each night, that whole system, which is how mitochondria protect themselves from damage, that whole system recharges. And that depends on a healthy circadian rhythm and healthy amounts of melatonin bathing the mitochondria each night. So there's a lot going on there and we can, we can use nutrition to optimize that. Yeah. It's uh, it's amazing that people on average get five hours of sleep per night in the United States. And yeah. It's just, it's just profound implications on their brain detox and energy production and it's something you really have to prioritize and people just feel like they just, they don't have time to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. They, they're mm -hmm. saying I'll sleep when I'm dead. Yeah. Like, the, okay. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're going to die a lot sooner if That's you keep gonna, up that attitude. <laughs> manifest a lot sooner than you think. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And so let's talk about, about some of the key strategies to optimize sleep. Cause I think a lot of people don't, they don't know why they're not sleeping or why they have trouble sleeping or they wake up in the middle of the night. And it's something that I think uh, for me, I had to troubleshoot so many things to get good sleep. And there's like 14 different things that, that can impact your sleep. So what are some of the key ones? You know, one, so light is obviously a huge one to optimize that central circadian clock. I mentioned a few, a few things there as far as bright light early in the day, it's massive. It's how I start every single day. Um, I either just go out to my land here and I watch the sunrise. I do some movement practices and breathing practices as I'm letting that sun enter my eyes. Or I go for a walk on the beach or I'm surfing, in which case I'm doing the same thing. I'm getting lots and lots of sunlight in my eyes. And it's critical to start your day like that. It's also critical to have a big differential of your daytime light exposure and your nighttime light exposure. So. Um, this is something that's often overlooked by people and, and not well understood, but the, the, the circadian clock in the brain basically receives light signals through the eyes. We, we have photons of light, primarily light in, that are in the blue wavelengths, also to some extent, the green wavelengths that enter the eyeballs, hit receptors, and then feed back as electrical impulses into a part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, where the circadian clock resides. Now, how it knows day daytime from nighttime depends on the differential of light intensity, not, not just the wavelengths, the color, but the differential of, of the intensity of the bright light exposure between daytime and nighttime. This is why when you travel, you get jet lag. You have, you're in a different rhythm of when the light is entering the eyes and when the darkness is happening. And so that disrupts you for a period of time as your circadian clock needs to reset and all those different neurotransmitters and hormones are need to find a new rhythm. So that differential is critical though. And what this means is if you spend all day indoors in indoor room lighting, looking at computer screens and cell phone screens and under the, the, the lighting of that room. And then at nighttime, you're still indoors under indoor room lighting, looking at screens. 
there's very little differential in terms of the intensity of that light exposure. Okay. There's um, actually an interesting experiment where they looked, they took a bunch of, I think it was a Ru in Russia, they took some astronauts and they basically put them in a chamber where they were indoors. They had no, no, not even windows to the outdoor world. And they put them in a chamber, I believe for a year. And, um, and they, they obviously had lighting, you know, it wasn't completely dark and they had the lighting on during the day. And then they turned the, the lights off at night to sleep. Um, and within a couple weeks, they all had profound sleep disturbances, profound circadian rhythm dis disruption. Okay. Because even in that indoor environment where you have light during the day for a certain amount of hours, then darkness, it's not enough of a differential of that light exposure. So outdoor bright light exposure, sunlight, and just being outdoors uh, is orders of magnitude, a, a hundred, a thousand fold greater light intensity than we get in indoor environments. So we want to have lots and lots of bright light during the day, very little at, at, at night, or we want to have a much lower amount of bright light um, entering our eyes in the evening. And that allows the circadian rhythm to be strong and to know the difference between daytime and nighttime and to be less sensitive, less susceptible to the melatonin suppressing effects of artificial light at night. We know just to, to give you some numbers on that, we know that um, research has shown that, that being in standard room lighting in your home, just standard fluorescent LED room lighting suppresses melatonin levels by upwards of 70%. Wow. So we're, we're not talking about just some small, you know, five, 10% effect. If you look at your phone or your computer screen, even just being in your home under normal home lighting suppresses melatonin by upwards of two thirds of that melatonin is not in your system, not bathing your mitochondria and your brain and protecting them from damage. Okay. So what, what, you know, what are the consequences of suppressing your melatonin levels, this critically important mitochondrial hormone, um, anti-cancer hormone, anti-neurological disease, neuroprotective hormone, um, by 70% day after day for months, for years, for decades, right? It's going to massively increase mitochondrial degeneration, neurodegeneration, your, your susceptibility to cancer, many other problems. So that's, the light story is huge and you know those two components early morning bright light lots of bright light throughout the day minimizing bright light at night wearing blue blockers using softwares on your computer uh, like flux and iris and things and your and your cell phones to minimize blue light and to um, also control the lighting in your home to shift to dim incandescent or candlelight in the evenings or red light and things like that in your living areas at night, in your bedroom and in your bathroom and complete darkness at night. So we wanna create as big a differential as possible. So all of those things are critical for the central clock. Um, one of the other things that I'll mention that's not widely talked about uh, is a few years ago, there was some researchers that, uh, that, that were sleep researchers that went to hunter-gatherer tribes. They went to, I believe, three hunter-gatherer tribes one in Africa and two in South America, and they studied their sleep cycles um, for several weeks. They put sleep trackers on them and they did really in-depth analysis of this. There were some interesting findings of this, one, one of which is that they debunked kind of the myth that hunter-gatherers go to sleep when the sun goes down. Um, they don't, they go to sleep on average about three hours after the sun goes down. 
So they stay awake typically around firelight. And firelight's interesting. This is a bit of a digression, but firelight actually emits lots of red light, which is something you and I have talked about in a previous podcast. And, and that red light and near-infrared light actually helps promote melatonin levels. So not only does it not suppress it, but it actually enhances melatonin. The other interesting thing that they found in this study was that temperature plays a surprisingly big role in sleep uh, and circadian rhythm, not just light exposure. So they found that actually the, the, the hunter-gatherers typically woke up before sunrise, not during sunrise from light exposure. They typically woke up before sunrise, and this was largely cued by the elevation in temperature. And, um, and at night, similarly, it wasn't the sun going down that cued them to fall asleep. It was the drop in temperature that occurs in the evening. So the body is pretty sensitive to temperature. And in the modern world, you know, we have climate controlled environments. We can use that to our advantage, um, by setting our thermostats to automatically cool and heat at certain times that we want to mimic those patterns. And we can also do things like um, taking a hot shower or hot bath 60 or 90 minutes before bed, heating up the body, and then allowing it to cool rapidly. So for example, that could be um, just staying wet a little bit longer after the bath or the shower, and then going under a fan or just letting cold air from outside come in and cool you rapidly. That rapid drop in body temperature can enhance sleep uh, profoundly. Um, the temperature that you sleep at also has a profound effect. Uh, and, and there is kind of an optimal temperature range between the typically the mid mid sixties to about 70 or 72 degrees. And, um, it's actually surprisingly common how many people have sleep problems just to not having a good temperature in their room while they sleep. Yeah, so those I, are a number I had that issue when I was going through menopause, I was kept waking up at night cause I was hot. And I got mm -hmm. a chili pad and sort of regulating my temperature. It's like, it's such a game changer. I sleep yeah. so good uh, since I, I got one to cool my body down. Yeah. And that's acting on that same principle. You're just using that chili pad to, to cool the body temperature, to allow it to drop into sleep mode, which is, which is wonderful. So those are, those are some methods to do it. And then, and then there's nutritional methods to um, optimize the peripheral clocks. Yeah. Let's but I'm, I'm being, I'm being lengthy in my answers. Yes. So I'm, I want to make sure I'm not uh, not spending too long on a topic that we don't get to other topics you want to go to. Yes, for sure. Let's talk about the nutrition. Like, like what kind of nutrition can optimize our energy? Let's go into more more details on that. Okay. So number one is what I mentioned before is optimizing your feeding window and fasting windows. So six to 10 hours is what we want. That's the very short version of that. And um, we know that when we do that, when we switch our feeding window to between six to 10 hours, um, we have research showing that it improves sleep quality, it improves energy levels, it decreases uh, levels of inflammatory cytokines, of inflammation, and of oxidative stress, and improves insulin sensitivity. So we're getting these, these widespread improvements in metabolic health. Um, we're going to get improvements in many different parameters of hormonal health as well, not just insulin, but um, many other hormones all the ones that I mentioned that are tied into the circadian rhythm, testosterone and growth hormone and um, cortisol and, and thyroid hormone and melatonin all depend on healthy circadian rhythms. So uh, that's one thing. And another important aspect I'll mention 
is um, we want to synchronize that window of food intake as much as possible to the hours of daylight. By doing that, we're that's that's how we help synchronize the peripheral clocks in all the tissues of our body to the central clock in the brain. We want to have the light inputs matching up with the food inputs as much as possible. And we know from lots of experiments in animal models as well as human studies that night eating, consuming large amounts of your food in the evening, disturbs metabolic health. Um, for example, I'll mention one study here where they, that was a really interesting study. I want to make sure I get the numbers right. Um, where they had people eat the exact same meal either at 8 a.m. or 8 p.m. And they showed profound differences in the hormonal responses to that meal. So particularly with blood sugar and insulin, uh, they showed that the, that peak glucose increased by 30% by eating the meal at 8 p.m. Uh, there was an 86% increase in the total glucose blood sugar response and 66% more time spent in hyperglycemia, high blood sugar levels than the same exact meal consumed at 8 AM. So th this is just one example of, of a larger body of research showing that consuming lots of your food at night disturbs circadian rhythm, disturbs sleep. It also impairs uh, autophagy and mitophagy and glymphatic drainage, um, cleansing the brain of these toxins every night. So there's, there's many different effects there. It also impairs the growth hormone response and, um, causes insulin sensitivity, which when that's happening with, um, mel the melatonin surge, melatonin actually amplifies insulin resistance as well. So there's, there's a lot of interplay of basically why consuming a lot of your food at night is no bueno for your metabolic health. Um, I can attest to that because I just spent five weeks in Argentina and uh -huh. they eat at night. Like the restaurants yeah. don't even open until eight o'clock. Yeah. And I was just being tortured because I'd be eating at eight, nine, 10 PM and wanted to go to sleep. But it was just yeah. terrible, terrible. Like you can't even eat before 8 PM because the restaurants don't open. And so I spent five weeks pretty much doing that. It's very big departure from my, I usually eat in an eight hour window and really felt a, a huge, huge difference there and gain weight. I definitely, I gained like five pounds when I was yeah. because of this difference. And there's a little wine involved too. In our <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah just totally. not, it's not optimal for sure. Yeah. My, my wife is from Chile and when mm. we go to visit her family down there, they have meals like at 10 PM yeah. and staying up till like eating the food till midnight. And I'm like, what, what are yeah. we doing here guys? Yeah, I, like, go to I can't do this. I eat, I eat at five. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, people. <laughs> yeah. They just so, can't get their minds around that. <laughs> yeah. So that's what, and then I'll mention one more thing, which is um, calorie stacking and kind of in a similar vein to what I was just describing. Um, there's a number of studies that have basically taken equal calorie diets and they will either have people consume the bulk of those calories in the, the earlier part of the day or the later part of the day. So either you have 12, a 1200 calorie diet with a, a 200 calorie breakfast and like an 800 calorie dinner or an 800 calorie breakfast and a 200 calorie dinner, for example. Um, and those studies consistently show uh, greater weight loss in the group that stacks more calories earlier in the day, even though it's exactly equal amounts of calories consumed. And the reason why isn't because, you know, calories are nonsense and calories don't matter. It's because you're signaling to the body with a larger meal earlier in the day, you're signaling energy is available. Energy is abundant. 
uh, food is available. And, um, and, and the body actually upregulates energy levels and it upregulates something called NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is basically all the twitching and fidgeting you do throughout the day and how many times you get up from your seat and move around, like the, the internal subjective urges, non-conscious urges that you feel to move your body are determined by that. And they account for hundreds of calories burned each day. So the body shifts that dynamically in response to whether there is perceived calorie food abundance or if energy is scarce, then it's, it downregulates energy expenditure in response to that. So when you spend your whole day with the signal that um, energy is scarce and the body downregulates energy expenditure, and then before bed, you consume a huge amount of calories, the bulk of your daily calories, um, then your body doesn't even have time to burn it off like it does if you consume the bulk during uh, during the earlier part of the day. So um, that's why those studies find that. And, there, and there's a number of studies that have shown um, that actually like over 50 or 60% of Americans consume, uh, I believe it's like 68% of their calories after 6 p.m. on average. That was me in Argentina. For sure. <laughs> it's like 98%. 98% of my calories after 8 p.m. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, so let's talk about some of the the superfoods uh, that that people can eat to to optimize energy production, feed their mitochondria. Okay. Um, so I have a few animal-based superfoods and I have a few plant-based ones. So I would say in terms of plants, pomegranates, beets. Uh, broccoli sprouts, spirulina. I would say those are probably some of my favorites. There, there's many more in the book, but I don't want to s- s- give a huge list here. Broccoli sprouts have sulforaphane. This is this has become more um, more widely known now, and sulforaphane has a number of benefits, including um, stimulating mitochondrial biogenesis and stimulating the the ARE, the antioxidant response element. Um, building up that internal antioxidant response system of your mitochondria, helping them become more robust and resilient and resistant to a broad range of other stressors and helping them also to better detoxify uh, different chemicals and heavy metals and things like that. Beets have some wonderful compounds in them that help modulate uh, nitric oxide levels and blood circulation. And there's some wonderful research showing that this actually is significant enough to translate into um, improved athletic performance. So improved energy and improved stamina um, in athletic performance. Pomegranates have a compound in them. They're one of the richest foods or perhaps the richest, maybe the top two. I think chestnuts are up there as well in a compound called elagic acid or elagitanins. And elagic acid is converted by specific bacteria in the intestines into a compound called urolithin A. And urolithin A has been shown to um, be basically the most powerful promoter of mitophagy ever discovered. Mitophagy, again, is like autophagy at the mitochondrial level, basically cleaning up damaged dysfunctional mitochondria and and rebuilding healthy ones. So um, pomegranates are absolutely wonderful for stimulating mitochondrial cleanup and repair. Would that include Uh, just drinking the juice or do you need to actually eat them? you will you will get some benefits from drinking the juice as well but potentially there's some sort of like in general juice is not is not great for blood sugar levels so um 
yes, there's good compounds in the juice, but it's better to get it with from the whole food, uh, the whole fruit in general, rather than the, the juice as a general principle across all fruit. So in terms of animal foods, um, beef liver, oysters, and salmon roe are some of my favorites there and actually pastured eggs as well. And, you know, beef liver is basically like nature's multivitamin. It, it's just packed with good stuff. And oysters are packed with minerals like zinc and selenium and iodine. And also, um, obviously, if you're eating raw oysters, you're getting a huge amount of omega-3s in their raw, pristine, undenatured form. So wonderful superfood there. Salmon, salmon eggs, which is often most typically eaten with, with sushi for most people. Um, is another wonderful food for that as well. And the it's extremely rich in omega-3s and they're in a phospholipid form. The phospholipid form actually helps provide phospholipids that help repair mitochondrial membranes as well. So that's another advantage of that. And the pastured eggs are, they're rich in a number of different compounds, vitamin A and, um, and vitamin D. Obviously it's one of the best sources of protein. Um, and they, it's also rich in two compounds that are also found in abundance in greens and green leafy vegetables, uh, called lutein and zeaxanthin. And the lutein and zeaxanthin is actually even more bioavailable in, when consumed from eggs than it is from greens. Um, not to say that consuming it from greens is bad. It's great. It's just that eggs are even more bioavailable, uh, and that lutein and zeaxanthin have been huge have are very very important compounds for protecting neurological health and protecting against uh, brain degeneration and also protecting the omega-3 fatty acids that make up such a huge pro uh, portion of our brain the those carotenoids these these pigments these phytochemicals from plant foods and from the from eggs from egg yolks play a huge role in protecting those omega-3 fatty acids from oxidation and from becoming rancid. So, and that's been shown not just mechanistically, sort of theoretically, yeah, they, they protect against omega-3s, therefore they're going to be beneficial for brain health, but it's actually been shown in numerous studies that higher levels of lutein and zeaxanthin consumption and buildup in the brain are in fact hugely protective of dementia and Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah, and so you talk about earlier in the show about uh, you know how we start losing our mitochondria about ten percent a year. Are a lot of these strategies that you talk about a way to multiply mitochondria? How do you how do you produce more mitochondria? Yeah, great question. So um, the the short answer to that is hormetic stress. Um, we need hormetic stressors in our life to challenge our mitochondria to temporarily stress them, and by stressing them. They are stimulated to adapt, to grow stronger, and to create more mitochondria, to create mitochondrial biogenesis. So a couple things that I want to add to, to this earlier point I made about the loss of mitochondria. People might think, well, gee, that, that really sucks that you know, we lose our mitochondria as a result of the aging process. Well, in fact, when we, when we look at 70-year-olds who are lifelong athletes, exercisers, they have the same mitochondrial capacity as a young adult. They don't lose 10% of their mitochondrial capacity with each decade. Um, and what that means is that 
the loss of mitochondria is not a normal product of aging. It is a normal product of the modern lifestyle, the modern non-hormetic lifestyle, where we don't have these different types of hormetic stress built into our lifestyles anymore that we had for millions of years of our, our evolution. We had movement and exercise built into our lifestyle. We had exposure to um, the, the, the elements, cold and heat built into our lifestyle. We had phytochemicals built into our lifestyle from the foods that we were eating. Um, we had temporary food shortage built into our lifestyle. Um, we didn't always have grocery stores and fast food restaurants and refrigerators, you know, with a, a few feet away from us. Sometimes we had to go periods where we didn't have food. Uh, and all of those are types of hormetic stressors that stress your mitochondria. And by stressing them, temporarily in those ways, they are stimulated and kept strong in the same way that if you lift a heavy weight, your muscle is challenged and stimulated to adapt to that challenge to grow stronger. And it does that by growing more muscle fibers and building more strength in that tissue. Um, in the other way, if you break a bone and you have a cast on your arm or your leg, your body basically goes, I guess we don't need all that energetically costly muscle tissue anymore to survive. Let's get rid of it. And that is exactly the same process that your body does internally at the cellular level with your mitochondria. If your mitochondria aren't being challenged, the body causes them to atrophy and they, they, they literally shrink and shrivel and die off and you lose those mitochondria. The only silver lining to this is that the process can also be reversed. You can stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis by using hormetic stressors, by engaging in different types of exercise, by engaging in breath hold practices, by engaging in heat exposure like sauna or be living in a hot place, um, cold exposure, fasting, and different kinds of phytochemicals, things like sulforaphane and curcumin and resveratrol and pterostilbene and um, catechins and EGCG and so many of these other phytochemicals are stimulators of mitochondrial growth and biogenesis and what are called sometimes in the literature exercise mimetics because they stimulate many of the same uh, cellular pathways and mechanisms of building up the mitochondria as, as exercise does. So um, all of those different types of hormetic stressors are, are critical to challenging the mitochondria to keep them strong. Fantastic information as always. Super, super interesting, in-depth, well-researched. So anyone listening, go check out Ari's book, Eat for Energy. It's available now on Amazon. Um, you also have a great program called the, the Energy Blueprint, uh, which you guys, you've sold, to, you know, to 2 million people have taken this course. Just really uh, amazing and phenomenal success for a reason because you, you're just so uh, well-read and well-researched and present all this information in very easily digestible, actionable ways. So can you tell us where we can learn more about uh, your work and your book as well? Yeah. Thank you so much, my friend. I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, the new book, I would say just, just go there, just focus on that. And you can get that on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, wherever you want to buy books online. And it's called Eat for Energy. Okay, fantastic. And everyone, if you guys like this show, Ari's been on the, the Meyer Stucks podcast several times. So you can go check out those shows as well. You did one on red, uh, uh, red light therapy, which was super, super interesting as well. Uh, so everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to the Myers Detox podcast. I'm Dr. Wendy Myers. 
And I, every week, I want to bring you the world's experts on, uh, on every facet of improving your health because you deserve to feel good. And I want to help you on your journey to get there. So thanks for tuning in. I'll talk to you guys next week. The Myers Detox Podcast is created and hosted by Wendy Myers. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Wendy Myers and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.